Hello and welcome to Off the Record episode 2.6. Uh, there's times I'm subject to hyperbole, as anybody who's listening to this now, but um, I have to say that this interview that comes up first uh, is with Frank Turner. Uh, it's one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. The dude is just so insightful, and I listened to a ton of podcasts and read a ton of interviews before I did this with him because I wanted to talk about something he doesn't always talk about and go deeper because whenever he goes deep, it just rules. And whether you're a fan of him or not, I personally am, but whether or not you are, the insight this man has is just incredible. And especially if you want to get to know what goes on to be a great creative force in music today, the thoughts in this interview, I think, are just so awesome. And I'm really, really proud of this one. It re-energized me to, after a really hard three weeks of barely being able to get this podcast to go out, it made me excited to do it again. And then the second interview to not be diminished is with Maggie Vale. Um... The secret that I don't say in the top of this interview is Maggie also used to be this cool band called The Bangs that have a record called Sweet Revenge of this like garagey punk stuff. And it was funny enough, one of my favorite records. I had no idea she was in the band until I started doing the research, but that's a killer record. And uh, their cover of Cheap Tricks, Summer Girls, I think is actually better than the original, but don't come at me for that one. Um, but she works with Cash Music and Bikini Kill Records, and she used to be a Kill Rockstar's and she has some awesome insights. So check this all out. I'm really, really stoked on this episode. Here's Frank Turner. So first off, thanks for being here. I'm really loving the new record. I think it has a really amazing uh, emotion to it. Um, I was curious what lessons you've been making so many records and, you know, many artists these days don't really put out like that record a year anymore like they used to. Um, I've been curious about what lessons you've been learning along the way. If there's anything you could point to that you've grown through creativity-wise in the last few records. Well, I mean, there's kind of there's uh, nuts and bolts practical stuff. You know, I think I'm better at knowing how to write songs, arrange songs, how to use a studio, how to talk to producers and mixers and engineers and record label people and all that kind of thing. And that just comes with repeated experience. That's not really remarkable, particularly, I don't think. I think that... Um, I guess I, I think that I've learned a lesson that everybody sort of professes at the beginning and then you kind of, I think it's quite common to stray away from and come back to, which is to trust your own judgment way before anybody else's. <clears throat> Obviously, you know, there's great, everybody comes to creativity, I think, with that to a degree anyway. That's why you want to be creative is to kind of express your own point of view, your own feelings, whatever it might be. Um, uh, I think there have been moments in my recording career when... Um, you know, if, if, if you're sort of thrown into the deep end with a lot of people who made a lot of records and that kind of thing, uh, even the most uh, hard-hearted, um, uh, most sort of punk rock defiant person is going to have moments where you find yourself sort of wondering whether or not you should be taking advice and all this kind of thing and, and indeed taking it. And I think that the thing that I've learned over the years is that actually uh, that, that is, as we all initially suspected at the beginning, bullshit. Huh. So you're, well, to get this correct, you're saying that the advice you get a lot of the time, you think it ends up being bad and it ends up betraying who, what you want to do? No, that's not quite what I mean. And, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to kind of say that like everybody who I've worked with on records is talking out their ass or anything like that. Just, just to give you uh, <laughs> a, a thing, what I do for a living is I'm a record producer. So uh -huh. I find, I, so I yeah, find yeah. this very well, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing, the word producer, because I often feel that it's quite difficult to explain to, for want of a better term, civilians, what it's a good producer does you know and i mean the, the the snappiest way of saying it that i've yet come up with is, is a producer's job is to pull the best out of a band mm -hmm. um and perhaps better than they suspected they could be is what a great producer does but what, what i mean more is just that there, there have been occasions when my judgment has conflicted with what perhaps somebody else involved in the process might have thought and there have been times when i've sort of uh, been tempted to defer to authority or indeed have deferred to authority and an experience or whatever it might be you know and over the years the, the creative decisions I've taken that I've come to regret, of which there are not many at all, but they generally revolve around that kind of situation, the situation where I, I've kind of gone, okay, well, maybe he knows what he's talking about. I'm going to do what he says. And then looking back on it, I go, no, that was complete crap. Huh. That is an interesting dynamic because, like, yeah, I like, you know, Rick Rubin, who obviously one of the most successful producers in the history of music, like, he often says that thing of that what he's trying to do is find what the artist wants as much as possible and really find their vision, yet he's also famous for 
telling them they're wrong constantly. And I think that that's such a yeah. a very odd balance that we have to walk in this in, in making records. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I think that it's it's not an easy job. And I've 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 played producer myself on two uh, occasions, and it was quite a difficult uh, process to think myself into the right sort of circle of authority almost I want to say because it's like you know on the one hand uh, I was making a record for a singer called Billy the Kid who's fantastic and very talented and, and there were moments in the process where I very strongly felt that we should go down a certain road um, and she disagreed and, and you argue your case but you have to kind of you have to learn and, the, and embrace the humility of kind of going actually you know what it's not my record it's her record yes and uh, and also just I, I always come at it from a thing of that when I was a young punk kid record producers told me I was wrong and they tried to make them sound like heavy metal records. And then I just learned how to do it myself. So they couldn't tell me that anymore. And yeah. eventually the artist is going to do that. And their name is much bigger than yours. So I read that when you did tape deck heart, you were working and you were doing tons and tons of takes. And then now you chose to do this record much faster. Yeah. What was the thought behind that? Well, there's a number of things. I mean, <clears throat> it's probably useful to talk in a slightly broader sense about both records and how they compare because mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in many senses they're kind of light and shade uh, they're yin and yang for want of a less hackneyed phrase it's, uh, it's funny they still both feel though in your catalog very much like you to me as a objective listener well uh, thank you i'm glad um but but i mean so for me check Deck heart was was a record that was written in quite a dark place and it's about mm -hmm. failure essentially it's about um uh the collapse of a of the most meaningful relationship in my adult life and and about the fact that that was entirely my fault and um uh within that i was in quite a kind of disparate place mentally whilst making the record um there was a you know, the, I remember at one point we had 25, when we were actually in the studio with Rich Costi, we had 25 songs up on the board, which is really not like me at all. I usually have a pretty kind of solid idea of what's going on the record by the time we come to make it. And um, I was still writing while we were in the studio. And um, yeah, just everything was quite kind of, um, uh, it wasn't a particularly sharp focus, I want to say, almost in a way. And, and so the process of being in the studio was the focus. Um, which was interesting because that's not um, uh, that's not usually how I make records. If you see what I mean, uh, I'm usually much more kind of uh, the the recording is the final part of the process, the sort of consolidation of something that's already taken place elsewhere. If you see what I mean. So, um, so as somebody who's able to make a compilation every three years of their B sides, those you always know those tracks should be kind of strays, and you just go in to record the ones that you know yeah. belong on this record for some reason. For for the most part, yeah. I mean, there's with every, I mean, with England Keep My Bones, for example, there was two. I think there were two songs that were recorded in the session that didn't make the record. But I mean, you know, with Take That Car, it was more the case that we had more songs that were kind of at least in contention when we arrived in the studio <clears throat> that didn't make the record than actually did make the record in the final analysis. And that and that was so. I guess what I'm saying is that with with Take That Car, we used the studio as a refining tool, mm. and a lot of the songs kind of were rearranged quite heavily whilst we were in the studio. Uh, and all that kind of thing, all of which, none of which I'm, I'm doing down particularly. That was the way that record came together. But um, and, and I think it almost in a way I want to say it was necessary for me to kind of figure out what it was I was trying to say and do within the context of trying to write about something quite unpleasant. Uh, with the new record, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that every creative person is naturally reactive, I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to the last thing that you did, or at least I, I certainly feel that the I had this sort of instinctive tendency to kind of hate on the last thing that I did mm -hmm. immediately after I've done it for about a year, after which I then grudgingly concede that it has some merit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, it's six, so, six months for me, but I can't listen to a record I've done. Then then, I, then I'm convinced I did a great job after six months. Right, yeah, I, I have a thing. I mean, like, whilst we were making Take That Heart, I was extremely down and keep my bones. Whilst we were making positive songs I was extremely down take that car and then you know I've recently listened to Poetry of the Deed and gone oh wow I love this record it's great um <laughs> so you know there's there, it, there's a sort of cycle in there somewhere um so there's that as a kind of like as a as a sort of preface to it but it, also the record the new album was about kind of survival and about sort of redemption almost and about kind of pulling through the dark times and um with that in mind I wanted to come at it differently and the Writing actually took place. Quite a lot of the songs were actually, I started writing them before Take the Heart was even released because there's that sort of inbuilt time lag in the mm -hmm. music industry, you know, between you finish mastering a record and then there's 
two or three months, even four months of kind of promo and all that nonsense. Yeah. Um, so the songs are starting to come together, and I wanted to, I wanted it to be kind of fresh and direct and kind of sprightly. Um, and a big part of that as well was I was the, the well the other thing to bear in mind is it's my sixth studio album, and I think that six is not an inherently interesting number for for an artist, you know. <laughs> yes. But you you've see, you've been ascending, though. So I think there's so, there's so many people who I think who don't realize that until they get into you that this is your sixth album, which I think yeah. is an interesting thing coming from the underground and doing it on a more indie basis, and now having the bigger platform you have. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly. I mean, there are definitely examples out there, but it's certainly an unusual place to be in in the music industry, which is so focused on kind of on hype and on new things and on debut releases and all that kind of thing. And definitely not uh, a uh, mid early 30s year old bad usually. Yeah. Definitely. I mean there was that you know uh, I I I've never had this confirmed but I suspect that there are some press people who just think I'm a bit too old. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, which is hilarious because I'm 33 but um, but so uh, yeah there's uh, with with all that in mind I kind of wanted that was the other kind of driving ethos is I wanted the new record to feel kind of vital and fresh and immediate and not like, oh, yeah, this is another record by that guy. I wanted it to be kind of like a slap in the face. like I, and To be considered as a debut album, I think that there's an extent to which when a band releases a sixth album, quite a lot of the time the reviews will review it in the context of that career, which is legitimate and fine and makes obvious sense when you put it like that. But the flip side of it is just to say, well, it, would you say the same things about it if this was a debut record by a new band? And I personally feel like I would like to be judged by that stricter uh, set of parameters. You know, I'd like people to listen to positive songs and imagine that I've never done anything before and imagine it's a brand new band and evaluate whether or not they like it on that basis rather than on like, well, I liked the, you know, some of the previous records. Yeah. And it's so funny because so many, so much of your audience, this will be the first or second record they've heard from you, even if it's your sixth sometimes as you ascend, if you're, you know, if you're still ascending on record six, which many people aren't. And so it is funny to have it judged as like, oh, this tired old thing, they've been making six records and all those compilations. Oh my God, when's this guy going to stop? Yeah, when's he going to shut the fuck up? <laughs> yeah. No, no, totally. I mean, so, so yeah, I, I wanted to kind of have that kind of discipline almost, I want to say, in the studio of it being like, you know, don't, um, or, and almost, you know, I, I wanted, to, I, I was quite sort of, you know what I mean by like sort of movie franchise reboots kind of thing. Mm. You know, it was a Redux. It's Frank Turner Redux. It was uh -huh. that idea of, you know, I didn't want to be too bothered about like if, if, um, if I was kind of treading over like say lyrical subject that I'd explored before. It was like, because in the past I've always been like, don't repeat yourself. And it's not that like I wanted to repeat myself this time around, but it was more kind of like it was the attitude behind it had to be fresh and original and new rather than just strictly speaking subject matter. When you're making those conscious decisions, I've noticed throughout your releases that thing that you don't always tread on the same thing. You never notice like that for some people that can be gratuitous and kind of forced. You seem like naturally just kind of a genuine person when I did the uh, my research of listening to podcasts with you, but is there any advice you have for somebody when they're like that, when they're kind of taking that thing of like, well, I don't want to do this again, not having it be so gratuitous and have it still be a place that like your records sound like they just have so much heart on them. Is it just a natural thing or is there a philosophy you have yeah. or anything kind well, of light? Yeah, see, the thing is, what we're doing right here is sticking a scalpel right into the heart of the matter. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, because that's the thing, you know, on the one hand, you want to be original, you want to be you, but you also don't want to be, you want to be natural as well. Um, I was reading just the other day a great Elvis Costello quote, which I'll paraphrase because I can't remember the original phraseology, but it was essentially, you know, everybody in rock and roll starts out trying to copy something else, and it's by getting it wrong that you come up with your own voice. Um, <laughs> that's that's a fucking great quote. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think there's an awful lot of truth in that as well. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And um, and and it's funny because all of, of all of the things. Well, okay, I'm going on a slight tangent here, but it's it's relevant. One of the things that I think is is weird and perhaps unhelpful about the process of becoming a successful artist and having a career over over a period of time is that you get used to being reviewed um, and and to the process of criticism and I often feel like the uncriticized artist it just not you know the sort of the, in, in, in his raw and or his or her raw and naked form is is more um, is freer is more is more at liberty to kind of do interesting things do you know what I mean mm -hmm. um, I mean I feel like there's a tendency that bands tend to kind of become music critics before they're musicians and that's quite often why they disappear up there and ask you know, mm. um, so for me, like, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm at pains not to repeat myself per se, but I'm also at pains not to force myself down an unnatural stylistic avenue or to do something that doesn't just feel like, because my, my, my kind of um, 
golden rule, if you like, my, it's always been to just write what I think is a good song and leave it at mm. that. And I really don't want to have any other kind of parameters around my writing. And these two, uh, so to, to be, to, to not repeat yourself, but to be, to be natural, naturalistic in, in your art are per, perhaps conflicting drives, you know, and how, how you reconcile them. And I know essentially what I've just done is reformulate the question you asked. But <laughs> well, You're giving a great answer, so go with it. But yeah, so it's, I mean, that is something that I sort of, I do spend a lot of time thinking about. I mean, um, I guess my sort of resolution on it is that I like to, if I can say this without being hugely pretentious, I like to think of myself as a student of songwriting as a thing in and of itself that is completely detached from things like genre or indeed kind of history or whatever you know so something i do with my spare time for example a few years ago i just sat down with abba's back catalog and just started learning the basic chord structures behind every abba song um and seeing how the chord structures shifted and how they interact with the melody because i think that some of the best songwriters there are i've done that since with, with other artists i've done it with townsend zant i've done it with um regina specter uh, you know and to to systematically try and attack a body of songs and and examine them structurally um and i think that in doing that kind of thing you like my thing about not repeating myself it's almost Quite often I'll just sort of like, I'll hear a kind of, you know, a time sync or a beat or a tempo or a key change or something like that and just think I haven't engaged with something like that before. What would, how would I fit that into what I do? Um, and then you start messing around. I'm trying to think of a good example of that off the top of my head. Um, uh, almost I want to say like, I mean, the, on the new record, um, uh, let me think of it. Actually, no, I've got a better example. Um, on, on Love Iron Song, there's a song called Take You Home, which has a dad-gad tuning and it has a kind of very traditional kind of rolling um, paradiddle da, 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 kind of feel to it. And those are two sort of musical ideas I hadn't played with before. And I just thought, I'm going to muck around with these until something else comes along. And obviously it sounds like me because it's me writing songs. But once you sort of shifted the frame in which you're working, then hopefully you come up with something that also has something new to say. So, so you did say something in there though that I, I wanted to, so like you talk about the criticism thing. I think what's really funny is like, if you go to art school for painting, all day you do critiques. If you're an actor, you know, everybody's allowed to critique it. They're saying that you're not getting this part right, directors, other actors. But there's something in music that all criticism is just met with, like, ire. Like, you know, the worst bands in the world are the ones where, you know, you're not even allowed to, like, don't tell me how to play my instrument. Like, that negative pool. And I think it is funny because there's this, like, yeah. anti-self-aware thing in music. And I don't yeah. think it's healthy. So are, are, are you a student of your criticisms like you're actively paying attention to what people are saying about you aside from when you know you, the yeah. internet goes on fire with something you say about politics yeah. like are you actually paying attention to what they say about your art that that is a a very interesting point about the whole sort of actors and and that kind of thing and i think an excellent one and you've You've done a rare thing, which is make, make me stop gabbling endlessly for a minute. <laughs> I can edit out pauses too. If you, if you no, no, no. I mean, it's, that's, all... that's an interesting point because I mean, my but and it stands in counter to what I was saying, which is this idea that I think that if you if you start being a critic before being a, a an artist, that's a bad thing. But I think that you definitely have a point there, and it's an interesting one that I hadn't considered before. Yeah, I, I, this is also what I'm writing my whole new book on. So, right, uh, well, I'm, so you're gonna head start me. I, yeah, I'm yeah. sitting there. I'm sitting. <laughs> I'm sitting here all day thinking about this. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I think that is an interesting point. But okay, to come at it from a slightly different angle for a second, though. So something, and it's very important for me to phrase everything I'm about to say here with um, with a degree of sort of humility and not trying to sort of criticize anybody else. But it's like, so I have some friends who like. Um, Okay, I'll, t I'll, I'll use a real example because she's a friend and she won't mind. Um, Laura Marling, uh, do you mm -hmm. familiar with Laura? Yeah, Laura? absolutely. Laura, brilliant, beautiful, talented, one of the most incredible songwriters I know, really, really wonderful human being. But like, she grew up, like her parents gave her a guitar when she was a kid, she was sort of given records to listen to and music and she was sort of encouraged to sort of explore music and to be part of it. And it's been a part of her life since she was a kid. Now, I'm not holding any of that against her. I mean, A, it wasn't a choice and B, why would you be angry about anyone being involved in music that's a fantastic thing but my slight my reservation about it is simply that for me as a kid i was banned from buying music magazines as a kid i was told that rock and roll was something that i should ignore that it was bad for me that i wasn't allowed to be anywhere near and i really had to kind of fight for it to be part of my life mm. and um so for me the music that i make in my entire immersion in rock and roll culture which is uh which is my life it's my adult life it's my my passion and my art and indeed my job um all of that is kind of tinged with an with a fundamental feeling of rebellion mm -hmm. and, and I, I know that sounds kind of kind of slightly adolescent in a way no, but it's, it's what keeps you passionate i think too yeah you know it's like this is this is the thing i really had to fight to be part of this 
you know, and um, and and for me, okay, hold on, I'm really going on a tangent here, but bear with me. Um, for me, like that, that's kind of inherent in rock and roll as an art form is that it's supposed to be kind of a sort of outlaw art form to a degree. Again, I know that sounds slightly adolescent, and and it also runs counter to another opinion that I have. So I'm just completely talking out of my ass here. <laughs> like, um, I do feel like there's a degree to which you know rock and roll is still the kind of run to the litter when it comes to the arts in a way that on Sundays really annoys the crap out of me because it's like, I mean, certainly in the UK, what one of the, th- I mean, to be slightly materialistic about it, but it's like rock and roll is the only unsubsidized sector of the arts. And mm. yet it's the one that's looked down on by all these fucking opera twats who get given oh, yeah. millions of pounds a year by the government. Uh, and it's just kind of like, well, no one actually likes what you do, which is why you have to get paid by the government to do it. You know, <laughs> that's, uh, a, that's a great point, actually. Yeah. Uh, and another know, one of those flaws that you guys have in that, <laughs> that system. Well, I mean, it's, it, this was said by somebody else a long time ago, but the thing about, you know, the whole sort of thing of sort of like avant-garde theatre is just kind of like, no one wants to come and see our fucking play, so we're going to get the government to pay for it instead. And it's kind of like, well, you know, art is not validated purely on populist numbers, obviously, but uh, there is a degree to which it's kind of like, if you could find somebody other than taxpayers to cover this, this would be fantastic. Um, and, and I'm proud of the fact that I work in a sector which I don't ask for anybody's help with my art, and if not enough people buy my records, come see my shows, support what I do, I'll make ends meet somehow somewhere else without demanding restitution from the populace at large. That's politics. Let's move on. Um, but so, <laughs> yeah. so, so on the one hand, it's kind of like you know, um, I feel like um, I feel I feel like you know, I get annoyed that rock and roll's regarded as the run of the litter in a way. But on the other hand, you know, I'm kind of pleased and proud that rock and roll remains a kind of outlaw art form. You know, and and again, that's why when I see there are occasions when you see kind of like institutions from the music industry kind of trying to get involved in government grants and schemes and this kind of thing. And it's just kind of like, what the fuck, man? We're supposed to be the guy, we're supposed to be the people that people don't sit next to in the bar. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I That's what that. we're supposed thing. to be about, you know? Mm. And like, we're not supposed to have fucking, I mean, that whole thing in the UK was this sort of watershed moment in 1997 when Tony Blair was elected and mm. Oasis went to 10 Downing Street for a party. Yes. And it was like, what precisely is rock and roll about swanning around with a fucking politician, Ooh. you know? Yeah, fuck especially that. him. Um, yeah, well, oh, but I mean, I, 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 and, uh, any uh, politician, uh, oh, what's his name? The guy who wrote, Bill Drummond, wrote a fantastic essay on this. Who I, do you know Bill Drummond? Uh, I feel, feel like I know the name well, yeah. He's, he, was in, uh, he was in KLF and he's oh, now wow. up. Yeah, the, the machine gun, uh, he pulled yeah, he, that award he, show. Yeah, he burnt a million quid, famously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that book he wrote on the music business was so, so funny. Yeah, he's he's a genius. I love the guy, and and I mean, to be honest, he and I I think disagree politically on most things. But I, he wrote this fantastic essay about the ISIS thing, in which he was just kind of like, I don't care what the politics behind it are. Rock and roll was not supposed to be in Ten Downing Street, um, and and I think that that's completely true. And 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 I think that um, there's a degree to which rock and roll should be in a, a different from other types of art form, or at least it should it should be. It should be kind of ill-mannered, do you know what I mean? And it should be rude, and it should be cantankerous, and there's something in that that I like. So, uh, what, and I'm finally coming back to the point here, um, <laughs> which is that, which is that I feel like, um, you know, when you talk about stuff like kind of having like actors, you know, I have a, uh, I have a friend who who went to RADA, you know, the mm. school in London, yep. and you know, and and she uh, she sort of went through extreme degrees of criticism and study of her art form and all that kind of thing. And I'm not in any way kind of attacking that. I think it's great that she's so she's a fantastic actor and she's so involved and engaged in what she does. But that's not quite how I feel rock and roll should be. I mm. want to be like, well done, but rock and roll should be about lock-ins and hangovers and and I and I and part of me kind of feels a bit weird saying this because I hate Guns and Roses with every fiber of my being but like you know it should be a little bit kind of it should have a bit more dirt under its fingernails yeah I, I like that yeah and then within and then from a creative point of view I feel like there should be so, like you know that what was so great about Elvis was that he was a guy he was a truck driver from the deep south who danced like a gay man and sung like a black man and there was and there was no sort of like schools of criticism and there was something kind of um there was revolutionary in what he did you know and that's the kind of that's the sort of foundation moment of it you know yeah no, and, and i like to take it and you know like i think there's very few things more boring i'm going to say this with a qualification that i'm going to ask you about something with punk rock ethics in a few minutes but uh that like discussing what is and what isn't punk but like one of the guiding lights of my life is like i want to try to stay with the punk attitude I fell in love with. And I found this uh, Joe Strummer quote where he talked about, you know, what to him punk is, is being more real than everything else that exists right now. That like he, wa- you know, 
he wants to see some truth. Give me a truth that's realer than any truth that's happening right now, and that's what's punk. And like, I think that's the same thing. It's like that rock and roll should have that that segregation, and punk should be even almost more of an extreme segregation of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, punk at the end of the day was only ever kind of an extreme version of rock and roll ethics, anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think I feel quite strongly. I mean, my uh, I, yes, as you as you note, we strayed into the dangerous and potentially deeply tedious topic of what punk means. But, um, uh, you know, my own personal take on it has always been, I think that, um, to me, punk rock means self-creation. Mm. Uh, it means deciding who you are and what type of person you are and how you live and what sort of life you lead. And and within all possible ramifications of that. So, for example, to take a recent example, Laura Jane Grace, I think, is incredibly punk. Because she took the decision to be the person she wanted to be and not the person that society uh, or whatever had told her that she should be. And I think that that's... That is quintessentially punk to me. But then, and, and at the other end, almost arguably at the other end of the scale, Henry Rollins and who I adore, but I, I had this moment of realization the other day that about him and weightlifting. <laughs> I, I don't lift weights myself, but yes. the point is, by, by weightlifting, it's like he is creating the body that he wants to have. He's not accepting the body that he's been given. And in a funny way, that's punk as well. You know, and for me, in a much less dramatic and much more bourgeois kind of way, but I was born to be a kind of a middle-class kid who probably had an office job and probably went to church mm-hmm. and and all that kind of thing. And I've, I've just decided not to be that and to be a touring musician. Essentially, I, I kind of ran away and joined the circus, basically. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, and and, uh, and it's that act of self-creation, the act of saying, uh, almost sort of discarding... Um, the discarding your inheritance in a way, you know, and saying, fuck that, don't care, not interested, going to be this. You know, and that's punk to me. I like that a lot. So you said in an interview, one of my favorite things to say uh, that I've heard said, uh, like you talked about like the Tim Yohannan, editor of Maximum Rock and Roll for the kids who don't know. Um, and that punk rock guilt is a lot like the Catholic Church. Um, but this was a number of years ago. <laughs> go, you said it. I wanted to see if you've had any evolution on that as you've done. Like, I think it's pretty <laughs> awesome that like, you know, you do this Olympics thing and then like I see it my friends post a tweet and you're playing at a house five blocks from me in Brooklyn. And I'm like, Oh, I'm too old and tired to go to this, even though it's right <laughs> there. And I think that's so awesome. You still do that. But so where are you at in your punk rock guilt is what I was going to ask. Well, you from- know what? Okay. I mean, for the people who didn't hear the earlier one, because the thing is, I still totally subscribe to that idea. I think that, that Catholicism and punk rock have a fair amount in common, mm-hmm. um, just in the sense, not 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 everything, obviously, but there are degrees. You, one can be an ex-punk, but one can never be completely severed from it <laughs> in the same way that one can be an ex-Catholic, but if mm-hmm. you were brought up with it. You're never going to be a non-Catholic. There's always a little part of your brain that functions in that way. And, you know, Ian McKay's the Pope or whatever. Um, <laughs> Joe, Joe Strummer says uh, it's like the mafia. Once you're made, you're made. Yeah, right, quite. But then, you'll yeah, you could. Every time I get out, they pull me back in. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, so I definitely think that there is a lot of that, you know. And and and, and whilst all of that sounds has a tone of gentle mockery to it, I think that there's value to it, you know, the Punk just has that really kind of like ambivalent sort of relationship with success as a concept, which in some places I think is incredibly helpful and good, uh, and and and, um, and a really positive thing. You know that suspicion of of shortcuts and the suspicion of of people just pouring money into bands or whatever, and and into just a sort of obsession with integrity as an idea. I think those are good things. On the other hand. You know, um, it's slightly ahistorical, just in the sense that the class word, with all love and respect, a borderline boy band, <laughs> and Sex, Sex Pistols signed three major label contracts. Uh-huh. I mean, I, you know, um, and uh, so there's that, and then you know, also like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very good friends with the guys in Gaslight Anthem, you know, and they they suffered a little bit. You know, they suffered quite a lot of the punk rock backlash thing, and I remember saying to somebody somewhere, it's like I feel like the, uh, the reaction. To a band like Gas Anthem doing well should be like the film Cool Runnings. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, the, the, the Jamaican you know, Bob's it's like, team. Yeah, it's like, motherfuckers, one of our guys is in the fucking team. You know? <laughs> like, and, and it's so unlikely that we should just kind of laugh and then celebrate it and then and expect it not to last and and then buy them a drink when they get back to the bar, you know, rather than going, what a bunch of cunts and being really fucking pissy about it. We should celebrate it because it's so unlikely and it's so hilarious. And there's a kind of myopia in hating all kinds of success because, you know what, nothing lasts. Nothing anywhere ever lasts, you know? And you might as well sort of enjoy the things that happen. I mean, on a very personal level in my career, like with the Olympic thing that you mentioned, my central guiding reason for doing that when I got asked to do it was because, fuck it, why not? When the hell else am I ever going to get asked to do something even remotely like this? 
And like, am I going to grow up and be an old man sitting in the corner of a bar regaling youngsters with that time when I didn't do that? Mm. That's a fucking boring bar story. Do you know what I mean? I want interesting yep. bar stories. <laughs> I, I like that. Uh, and I, I actually, you know, to get to the religion thing, it's like I always joke that punk rock's my religion because what I, what I want is I want people to be this more real and this general thing. And I, I want people like you spreading these deep thoughts that are in your lyrics instead of the materialistic bullshit people hear if they turn on the radio. And I'd much rather see that prevalent in the world than, yeah. you know, more of the shit. Um, yeah. To get to your stories, so you just wrote a book, and I was curious uh, if you, there was any lessons you learned in your writing the pro- writing process of your book that poured over into your music, or vice versa. Um, it's sort of a little too early to say whether or not it's poured over into the music per se, simply because I sort of wrote it pretty much after I'd finished writing positive songs, and I, I haven't been working that concentratedly on on the next thing. I'm actually, I mean, this is an aside, but I'm in a kind of self-imposed writing dry spell at the okay. moment. I've decided not to write. Have you ever done that before? No, it's a new thing for me, but I just sort of, I feel like I want to kind of just sort of like clear the decks a little bit. I I would love for you to check back in with me because I'm going to just give you, one of the things I've researched in my new book is that like when people stop writing, that's what we, if that never stopped, that's what leads to writer's block, not to put you off, but like, yeah, yeah. you know, you don't know who you are when you, whereas when you're just writing again, it gets scary. I, I would be very curious to hear where this takes you next. Well, you know, I'm enjoying this conversation, so let's do it again sometime. Awesome. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, I think the thing for me is just that like, I, I feel like I've done six records that are playing a similar kind of faro and uh, I'm interested in, well, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I'm interested in, in sort of taking a stylistic left-hand turn, but I also want, don't want it to be something where I force myself in a certain direction. So um, hmm. I'm kind of, I'm just sort of, I want to kind of like just give myself a bit of headspace because I've spent the last 10 years being furiously obsessed with whatever song I was working on right now. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know what, it's quite nice getting up in the morning and just going for a coffee mm-hmm. and not sort of pulling my hair out about um, whether the middle eight of this song fits or whatever. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, it's it's it's, you know, it's it's a fun torturer. Yeah, yeah. But so going back to the book, so the, um, the book thing. I mean, the first thing I learned is that writing books is hard, um, and yeah, consi- yeah. considerably harder than I was expecting it to be. Um, I, I think I slightly hubristically expected it to be. You know, I've written plenty of magazine articles, and mm-hmm. it was like, well, it's just like a bunch of them in a row, uh, which obviously it isn't. Um, so I've learned to kind of doff my hat to the people who write books in this world, and I'm doffing mine at you right now. Mm-hmm. So um, there was that. Um, I mean, you know, the thing about the book for me was that, um, and look, we can tie this into everything we're talking about. The thing about the book for me was that uh, I read music biography and history pretty incessantly. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the history of the industry that I work in and in the art that I'm engaged in. And um, so, for example, I recently finished Peter Garanlik's two-volume biography of Elvis, which is one mm-hmm. of the greatest books I've ever read in my life. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and it's given me a terminal Elvis obsession. Having not given much of a fuck about Elvis before, I'm now super into Elvis. Uh, um, but uh, so, um, but I, I remember growing up and kind of reading lots of books about bands, and it would kind of go, yeah, we were just a bunch of kids in a basement, we wrote some songs, then we did a bunch of touring, and then we were at Madison Square Gardens, and then mm. it goes, and then there's 50 pages about their cocaine problems. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. but it, and it, but it's like, Holland, you just skip the bit I'm interested in, which mm-hmm. is how did you go from playing basement house parties to playing 100 cat venues, and from there to playing 1,000 cat venues, and from there to playing 10,000 cat venues? How was that process? What happened? When did you go from having a van to having a bus? How many crew members did you have? And maybe that's just me, but I'm no, interested. No, no, I, I'm right there with you. I, I, that's, this is a great dissection of what I think is wrong with so much music writing. Yeah, I think I think the thing about it is, is like, a lot of people who write about music think that the people who aren't musicians won't care about the new show being musicians, so they ignore that bit. Whereas, in fact, the whole fucking reason you're reading the book is to find out about the shit you didn't know about, mm. surely. Um, and so as a kid, a huge, huge turning point in my life was getting hold of a copy of Get in the Van, oh, which, yeah. incidentally, was extremely hard to get hold of before what, what, that was a thing. Wow. Uh, that, so yeah, that was abundantly easy, but I, you know, I also... Uh... Henry Rollins would walk by my work every day too, so it was well, like a thing. That, that, yeah, that'll help. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, so and and what I loved and indeed love present tense about that book is I remember reading it and feeling like it was the first time I felt like I knew what the road smelled like. You know? <laughs> yeah, and, and like I knew what the actual physical process—not knew fully, but had an inkling of what the actual physical process of being on tour would be like—and and that fascinated me, and it gave me 
it, it, it infected me with the fever that has yet to leave me, which is a desire to live a life on the road. So, um, so, so as an aside, had you toured yet when you read it? Um, uh, no, I hadn't, but see, I was just about to see, go on the road. So you weren't scared? Because I hadn't toured yet either, and it scared the shit out of me. No, it filled me with excitement. <laughs> well, I guess we're very different people. <laughs> well, it's interesting. The very first tour I ever did, I was 16 years old, and about 12 of us, there's two bands and our mates packed into the back of a transit van with no seats. And we booked it ourselves from a payphone using the back of Fractrazine, which was like the mm -hmm. British maximum rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And they had lists of promoters. And we booked a two-week run of shows. No one came to any of them. It was a total disaster. <laughs> what was interesting is when we got home, 12 people set out. Six people said, that's the worst thing I've ever done. And I never want to go anywhere near a fucking van ever again. And I'm never leaving home as long as I live. <laughs> and, six, and, and six people, myself included, went, give me more of <laughs> that. I want more now, immediately more. And that again, that feeling has yet to leave me. And I think that's why you do what you do. If you're hearing this music, that means that it's time for an ad. This week's episode is brought to you by a project that's near and dear to my heart. It's my book, Get More Fans, The DIY Guide to the New Music Business, which is a 725-page guide to the ideas, tools, and techniques you need to know to get your music heard in the music business today. I spent four years researching the book, writing down everything I learned about the music business, working in nearly every aspect of the music business since I was a teenager. It has just been updated for 2015, and there's over 100 pages of new or refreshed content in this year's edition. To learn more, go to getmorefansbook.com. Up next, I talk to Maggie Vale. She runs a really cool organization called Cash Music that's a nonprofit that helps musicians utilize really cool tools to help promote and make money. This is different because most things that do this are trying to make a profit off of you. They make these tools just to make the music world a better place. She also runs Bikini Kill Records, which is reissuing Bikini Kill's music. And that's one of my favorite groups of all time. And she used to work at the seminal punk label Kill Rock Stars. We talk about all that. Check it out. Thanks for being uh, with us. So can you tell me what Cash Music does? Cash Music is a nonprofit. And our mission is to help artists become sustainable in the digital age. So it's kind of a large <laughs> sweeping mission. <laughs> um, and we do it in a couple of different ways. So the biggest one and the most sort of public one to date has been our platform of tools. So we're, what we're trying to do is take the most basic layer of music technology. So everything from a shopping cart to email collection to tour date management and uh, make that open and free for artists to use. Um, we don't take a percentage. We never will. We don't believe that connecting a PayPal and a buy button is worth 10 or 15% of your money. We do it in very sort of practical ways like that with the platform. Um, we're also moving into education in the next year or so. And we've done, we've been doing that. You know, we've had summits across the U.S. We've done one in London designed to bring musicians and technologists together to sort of make sure that musicians are being heard about when we're talking about the future of music. Education will also include how-tos, best practices on, you know, some of the tools that we're building, some of the tools that other people have built and, and folks are using. But it will also speak to the larger issues of why music is so important in our society, what artists mean to our culture, and why it's important to support them. Wow, that's uh, quite an undertaking. Um, <laughs> yes, it is, with two and a half people. Wow. Actually, no, no, sorry, it's three and a half people now. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so... Can you tell me, I, for, I definitely want to get into more of some of the thoughts behind that. Um, mm -hmm. Can you first tell, so a lot of our audience is musicians who are looking for these tools. I think they only really know about, like, say, a band camp or whatever. Why your tools and what what exactly are the tools that you have a little bit more specifically? Because I can remember when you guys first started, I would use, like, you had, like, a tweet for a track and an email for right. media stuff that I would do. What are the current roster of tools and how can bands use them in... However, uh, however you best explain that. Well, so the platform has been built, like you said, with these sort of smaller, smaller bits of functionality and tools that were specifically for certain projects. We've always worked directly with artists to build mm. things that they need. That's also kind of to our core ethos, making sure that the things that we build work for actual working musicians um, instead of just coming up with an idea and being like, I don't know, maybe musicians need this and then sort of tweaking it later. But uh, so the, the functionality in the platform right now as it stands, um, 
So the shopping cart is just about ready to be done. We're using it in beta version on um, the Bikini Kill site as well as the Joy Formidable. Um, we powered the last Bikini Kill reissue with that. And so we got to find lots of fun little bugs that no one else will have to deal with. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, we were kind of the perfect guinea pigs because that's my other job. So the, the, the shopping cart is coming. Right now you can do individual single purchases um, in the released hosted version. And I'm, I'm guessing maybe by the time this comes out, the actual shopping cart will be will be ready to go for the uh, public. I might, I might actually put this up today. So. Oh, well, okay. Well, then never mind. Never mind. Um, so that will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. Um, you can do email collection. You can manage your tour dates. So and then you, got, you guys powered the Run the Jewels giving away their record as well? Yeah, we did. We, we powered both uh, Run the Jewels 2 as well as um, Meow the Jewels. And awesome. we'll be okay. working for them on the, on the next record as well. Pretty much everything on their side is our stuff now. Not the shopping cart that is coming. Mm -hmm. um, they're still using a different one. But. When a musician uses the platform, are they cl just collecting emails? Do you guys then make it so they can send it? Like, Can you give us a little bit of a tour around that when you're trading emails for a download? Right. Well, you can send – You can. lots of people choose to use MailChimp, um, and our platform is integrated with MailChimp. So you can collect emails on your site, and then it sort of syncs up APIs with, uh, with MailChimp, and the lists correspond. But basically, the idea is behind, I mean, the, the idea behind the cash platform is that artists should own and control the most direct relationship with their fans. Um, data should be theirs. Data should never be locked behind uh, anyone else's. I mean, that data shouldn't belong to any other platform. Yes. Um, you should be able to see where people are buying your stuff, where you have the most activity, when you have the most activity, um, and sort of figure out for yourself what you want to focus on. No, I think that that's a, a very important thing that despite that being a popular thought in the music business, people who read blogs, it's just really is never spread to the musicians at mass. So. No, no, no. I mean, and there's, you know, there's so much to understand when you're an artist putting out records and going on tour. I mean, there's so many things you need to keep an eye on, keep track of, and it probably just feels like another one of those things. Um, I think... It's often easier to sort of let somebody else think about your digital, you know, or your online sort of persona in some ways. But ultimately, that's where you're going to connect with your fans. I mean, behind playing a show, that's where you're going to connect with your fans most directly. And sort of owning that presence seems really vital to me. Yes, I, I, I say it in my book, which is like that thing of, you know, you don't think about it when you're 20 that... Right. You're still doing this in 10 years. You know What's great is being able to still email somebody 10 years later and they're right. excited that you're playing that record again or something. That's so valuable to keeping in touch. And if you own that instead of sending people to iTunes, Apple Music, or Spotify, right. uh, that, that's worth a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Or instead of having your – I mean you may have a really awesome independent label partner mm -hmm. and maybe you think it's cool to just have them deal with that side of it for you. But lots of times people have, you know, three or four different labels in their careers. Um, and it's difficult to get that information out. I like to tell this story about, I don't remember what year it was, but Kill Rock Stars, our server collapsed. It just crashed. Wow. It blew up. And we lost tens of thousands of emails. Mm. Never came back. Never came back. There was no way to get it. We, didn't, we hadn't backed it up. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, no. we just didn't think about it then it was all gone. And, and our newsletter was never the same. It never had the same act, impact after that. You know, I think it went from something like 20,000 people to 4,000. Wow. And like, it, it was still stuck at 4,000, I think, when I left. I mean, it was just disastrous, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is a uh, reoccurring thing on this podcast is back up your data. Yes, back <laughs> up your data, own your data. Uh, like try to learn and understand what it means, um, and that's part part of what we're going to be doing with education. I think actually data is the first major topic we'll focus on. Yeah, so that's a perfect segue into what I was going to ask you next. So, can you get more specific about what you're teaching um, musicians and how they can eventually see this when you guys start doing this more? I know you've yeah. done some summits in the past in a bunch of different cities. I was heartbroken. I was out of town, of course, the week you guys did New York, um, but I had friends who went and said it was amazing. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So um, the idea with the online education portion is we're going to have quarterly themes and we'll have different editors for each theme, sort of with the idea that we'll, we'll tackle things like what is data, what is meta, metadata, what does it mean 
to you. Um, but again, like I said, we want to ultimately at the end of each quarter do a very large piece sort of connecting it culturally and, and uh, going sort of deeper into these issues. Like, you know, what does it mean? <laughs> yes. um, but yeah, I mean, there'll be how-tos, there'll be that sort of stuff. To me, the idea that you could get information from a source on the internet that didn't then have a vested interest in you doing anything next. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you can get a lot of this stuff out there, but plenty of times it's because somebody wants you to understand or somebody wants you to, to have them administer your publishing. And maybe that's a fine thing to do, but you should always be wary of the information that's coming from the company that wants to then profit from you doing something. Yeah, I, I think that that's one of those sad things that, you know, like everybody learns as they grow up that like, you know, you see a study and then you look at who paid for the study. It's like, right. oh, that's so funny that the study that says genetically modified organisms are fine. It's funded by Monsanto. And right. in a so shittier cute. scale of our business is that like, a lot of the blogs that are providing information to musicians are paid for by a company that profits from, and the information is not always accurate. And I think that is an interesting thing since you guys are just here to educate music. You are a source that doesn't have an ulterior motive. Right, right. We're never going to make money from our tools. Do you know what I mean? Like if you, if you wanted to donate back, there'll be a way to do that, but that's never going to be, you know, something you have to do. And I think that's vital. I mean, the other the other part about it is so the tools are also open source, uh, which means that the code lives out in the world. If something were to happen to Cash Music at some point, we weren't able to fund ourselves any longer. The code still exists. It's still going to be out there. It's still going to be usable. Um, you don't necessarily need to have the organization attached to it. Um, and I think that's vital as well as being nonprofit. Nobody owns this. It cannot be bought or sold. We will never be able to. I mean, we'll never be able to sell this and then have it turn into something else. And I think that the bait and switch has been so common and so prevalent in tech. Yes. That I, I think underscoring that is, is really important. Yeah, and I, I think that that's so hard to find who to trust online. And you guys have been at this, I mean, six years or so? Yeah, yeah. Jesse's been doing it for seven. I, I've been here, wow, four years now? Mm-hmm. And I, every time I've seen you guys update something, it seemed to be very cool and helpful. So where, when you guys start doing this education, can people find out? Like, can they sign up on cashmusic.org to get it's the gonna, updates? It's going to take over the, the whole front page of the website. Oh, so cool. that, that should happen by this time next month. Cool. Yeah. So you guys already got a lot lined up then. We do. We do. We, that's what we've been working on. That and the shopping cart are sort of taking up most of our time right now. But in the next year, we'll be adding, you know, our subscription service. Kristen Hirsch has been using that for years. That was actually the first cash tool ever built was her subscription service. Um, and so we're polishing that up and getting it ready for the, for the public release. Um, and then, you know, we've, we've made a whole open venue database. So Katie Goodman from Lacera and Vivian Girls, she's, oh, cool. um, yeah. she's a part-time developer at Cash now. Um, oh, awesome. Yeah, and she's been working on this project of just making sort of an open venue database available to kind of anyone who wants to use it um, with the idea idea being, you know, Bands on Town is great. All these places are great, except for it's all weird proprietary information. Like, they consider venues proprietary information, which is just bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's the, yeah, that, 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 that's the thing with being profitable and taking uh, venture capitalism is right. you got to find some okay. way to turn this into cash. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, I mean... It, and talk about education, like that's something I can't wait to tackle, is explaining why music tech is so messy right now. Yeah. I mean, how many of these companies are actually profitable, you know, yeah. with, with how much investment that they've taken? I mean, it's how likely are these things going to be around in 10 years? Yeah, and I, I think that that's going to be an interesting thing when we start to see a couple of them fall. Like people could see like a turntable FM go down and then that post-mortem interview that guy did where he talks about how they basically had to bribe the major labels to allow mm -hmm. them to exist. And it's it's a pretty horrible world <laughs> when you right, see it. Right, right. And then they've taken so much investment. Do you know what I mean? That they have to pay back so much. Like you don't just pay it straight back. You pay it back five times, ten times. Yeah. You know, I mean, we had we had a exploratory call when we like four years ago we were talking to Mozilla and we were in their sort of uh, incubator so Mozilla is a for-profit non-profit hybrid and they wanted us to explore that model um, and so we were like fine 
we're, you know, Jesse and I were like, we're not going to do it, but we will have this phone call. And so we had a phone call with a, a VC, a venture capitalist, and he was really into the project. He was really into what we were doing. And then when he told us the terms of a deal, and, you know, he's like, I'd be willing to give you $200,000, but you'd have to pay me back. And, you know, I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, but the amount of money we would have to pay back, I just looked at Jesse and I mouthed because we were on a conference call, like a uh, speaker call. I was like, no fucking way. He's like, I know. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Because, you know, we'd have to make that on the backs of artists, which is exactly the opposite of what we were saying we wanted to be or do. Um, but do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's like when you hear that they've Spotify has taken $500 million from someone. Yeah. I'm still waiting to see if streaming can be profitable for anybody. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I, yeah. think, I think it's, you know, Apple may be fine because it's a loss leader yes, for yeah. other things. But, I mean, Spotify, I think they just came out, what, yesterday saying there was a, a report saying that Spotify UK is no longer profitable. And I believe that was the only wing last year that they said was profitable. Wow. I did not see that yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Jesse had a good point. You know, he was like, well, the UK is kind of the first place that reports their yearly uh, yeah, the earnings. Yeah, 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 yeah. The earnings. He's like, I bet they dumped a bunch of stuff last year. He said this. He's like, I bet they, they pushed a bunch of expenses to other markets to make it look like it was profitable. He's like, I bet that wasn't even profitable last year. That's really I mean, this is all speculation. Yeah. But you know what I mean? No, you know what it, I mean? It's, it's just good like, for musicians to know. Right, right. You should be wary that these things aren't necessarily going to be around or around the same way, at least. Um, yeah, no, I think it's – so we, I want to rewind just a little. So you were talking about the subscription service. That yes, sorry. Right. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's not a model that can work for everyone, of course. I mean, I think that's – the other fun part about being in the music industry is that everybody has an entirely different path. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's really, it, it, it's like one of those things with um, when people ask me, they're like, your book's 750 pages. And I'm like, well, there's a lot of options out there and I want you to understand them all. No, absolutely. I think that, you know, that's what's kind of behind making this platform as big as it is um, and is sort of um, flexible. The subscription service for Kristen, um, she was in the Throwing Muses, and, and then she's been doing solo stuff for a while now, and she has a lot of really devoted fans. And it was her and actually Danita Sparks from L7. They oh, were the, cool. yeah. the first two people to come up with the concept of cash, really. They were kind of sitting around thinking, well, couldn't we do something that's similar to, say, like a community-supported agriculture with a farm? You know, couldn't we do some kind of CSA but for music? And so I don't think Danita... I don't think it worked for her, but for Kristen, it really did. It's her main source of income wow. uh, to this day. You know, people pay a certain amount to her every month. They get into shows for free. They get releases for free. Um, you know, they just want to support one of their favorite artists directly. And so it's it's been really successful for her. Um, I, you know, it's we've seen it here and there, and, it's, and, and you know, Bandcamp is now offering subscriptions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's coming more into the forefront as a – as a viable business model. Um, and it's, yeah. it, it seems like, yeah, if you have a devoted fan base, this right. is a thing that work. This is yes. not for an emerging artist, whereas like your yeah, email for tools <laughs> would be much right. more so. Yeah, no, totally. I, I think, you know, I mean, there's, there's, you never know when something will work, yes. but, but for the most part, I would imagine this is something for older fans, you know, who maybe have a little bit of disposable money um, or maybe, you know, actually there's lots of, Young, maybe maybe if you appeal to um, developers, <laughs> have a lot of money that would be yeah. good. <laughs> t- t- tech nerds who want to just throw some money at those poor, starving musicians right. that they used right. to be. Isn't that kind of what Patreon is? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so to pivot a little, so you used to be at Kill Rock Stars, um, yes, and then now you're running Bikini Kill Records, which mm-hmm. is awesome to see that stuff coming back. Out again, can you tell us about maybe what's changed? Because Kill Rock Stars hasn't been around for a couple of years as an active label. Am I correct? No, they, they still are. They're doing okay. mostly comedy these days. Actually. Oh, wow. Okay. So not an active music label. Yeah. I mean, I think that they put out records from, from time to time, but for the most part, it seems like it's comedy. Oh, wow. They did a Hari Kondo Blue record um, and Cameron Esposito. But I think they do pretty well with that stuff. Awesome. But yeah, I haven't. I, I stopped working there about four years ago, but I was there for 17 and a half years. It was wow. kind of my <laughs> my uh, growing up was all done there. So what are you having to adapt to now doing Bikini Kill Records? Like, obviously, you have a very built-in 
there's a lot of people who are excited this stuff's finally coming out. Yeah, again, yeah. But, like we don't have everything. to look for the audience too hard. They yes. kind of that's which is, you know, a really privileged position to be in for sure. For me personally, I had actually never done production before. That was the only job I never did at Kill Rock Stars. <laughs> um, and so that's mostly what I do. I mean, I do, you know, I'm doing marketing and distribution and that kind of stuff, but I've never done the actual production of the records. And man, is that a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. It really is. I mean, it is so out of control these days. Like we had all of our finished parts. So all of our jackets, all of our inserts, everything just sitting at the pressing plant last December. We did oh. not get pieces until June. Yeah. And this is what they talk about, like this vinyl backlog now that right. the demand has just gotten so high and there's not enough machines. That's... No, no. And, and, and the place where we press, um, they're supposedly opening a, a second warehouse mm -hmm. full of, full of presses, but you know, it's crazy. So is, that, is that United? <laughs> yeah, it's United. And then, but then there's another pressing plant here in um, Portland that just opened up Cascade Record Pressing. And they're specifically actually not working with major labels. They're just going to work with independent labels or artists that are self-releasing. Oh, that's interesting. So yeah, as a sort of help that backlog. Cause I think that's a lot of what happens in, in the bigger pressing plants is, you know, they have these clients that these major labels that give them so much money that they have, they get precedence, you know, I mean, and it's, that makes sense. It's business. You don't want to bum out their made, you know, their most important customers. Yes. Yeah, so whoever's giving you money regularly, obviously is going to take precedent and major labels have that thing. So as far as there's things you had to relearn to do this, like was there anything that was very striking to you aside from that? No, not necessarily. I mean, it's all kind of the same process. It's just, you know, making sure that people know what's going on and getting it in the stores. So is there any plans for anything else aside from, so you put out this reissue of the first demos uh, and right. then uh, the soundtrack to the punk singer uh, mm -hmm. you guys just announced, um, and so to give the listeners who don't know, that's the documentary on Kathleen Hanna from Bikini Kill. Is there any other plans or is this really just it? Well, we, so those were, um, these are our, what, fourth and fifth reissues? Is that true? Um, so yeah, we started doing stuff in 2012 with the, the, the first EP was the 20th anniversary release. Um, and then the following year we put out, yeah, 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 yeah. And then, um, the CD of the first two records and then the, the demo. So yeah, we're going to completely go through the whole catalog. Oh, great. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I think Pussy was whipped will probably be next. Um, so I have to have to start working on that soon <laughs> awesome. <laughs> because, because the plants are so behind Yeah, wow. <laughs> that, that... Come out in the next year. I have to get on it. What advice do you wish you knew from when you were, uh, starting off in the music business that you wish you could have told yourself back then? Probably most importantly that many of these people stay in the music industry. Um, it's a very small business. I met a lot of people for the first time um, when I did college radio promotion. A lot of those people move on and continue to be in the industry. That's sort of like a, a great entry point. Um, but I later, later knew them as label people or as you know college radio promoters themselves or artists even. Um, it was kind of incredible how that's just a theme throughout my life is you never know who's going to come back into your life again. Um, when we were, I did mail order. That was the first job I did at Kill Rock Stars. And there were certain really diehard Kill Rock Stars fans, three of whom ended up on the label years later. Um, you know, we would, we would write them letters and vice versa. They would order everything. So it was Nathan from, from the gossip, the guitar player. Wow. That's funny. Yeah. Like when he moved to Olympia, all of us were running around going, Nathan from Cersei moved to Olympia. Like he was some <laughs> kind of rock star to us. You know? <laughs> that's really this funny. Kid I, that had drawn us all these pictures. I, I, I had, I worked at uh, go-kart records in the nineties and I had very similar things as that. Like somebody would say their name. I'd be like, wow, that's really, wait, you mail order all the time. Right. Totally. You, you draw the packages. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, three of our most, you know, rabid, you know, mail order customers be, were on the label, which was really great. Do you know what I mean? It really felt like, oh, this is a community we're building here. This yeah, is really exciting. Great, you had a great scene behind that label. Yeah, absolutely. It was a really special place to be at a really great time. Um, but yeah, so be nice. You never know <laughs> when you're going to run into the same people years later. As somebody who's doing music education, uh, what do you think is the most important 
thing that's misunderstood that people need to learn today. Well, might be hard to pick one. I know it is hard, but I think I'd probably go with publishing. I think. Okay. I think it's so what really a, what aspect? Yeah. Uh, just understanding how it works. You know, I mean, I, I feel like I know people that have been playing music almost as long as I have that have no idea what a publishing company is or why they would need to deal with it. You would be shocked how many like. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna tell you who they are, but so there, I knew a band that was selling hundreds of thousands of records. They did not know what a publishing company was. They did not sign up for anything. <laughs> they didn't know they were just hemorrhaging money, you know. And they had a manager. I mean, I think that's the most sort of. For me, publishing is like you ask people to explain it, and half the time you realize they have no clue what it is either. <laughs> wow, yeah. Like I was talking to my friend Tracy Verlindi, who she's she works at. Um, she does artist, um, well, I can't think of the word. What is wrong with my brain? <laughs> she's, she's in charge of talking to artists, basically, about publishing. you know. And right. I told her what we were doing, and she was just like, oh, thank you, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> like, you know, it, she's like, it took me so long to be able to understand all of the ins and outs. And you know, that's from somebody who's been doing it forever. It, it's funny. You know, I can see in my book, uh, analytic-wise, what gets skipped over most in the least right. read pages, and it's the publishing chapter. Right. It kind of just makes you glaze over. And it's it's funny you say this because like I never have heard anybody else say that, but I, when I noticed that, I just like looked at it. I was like, well, that is that's Fizzborg, and people probably know it because I feel right. like you know one of the first things people usually do is like one they want to copyright their music, and then two they want right. to do that. But I think you're right that like if you're a punk, not capitalistic indie mm-hmm. type person, that might be the thing you look over. Right, right, totally. I mean, it, you know, you don't really know what it means, and you think maybe if you just put, like, whatever, you know, Sarah wins at ASCAP or whatever, that you've got it. Do you know what I mean? Like, you don't know that you need to do something else besides that. It was one of the first things I did at Kill Rock Stars was I would sit down with people and explain how song ownership worked. I would draw a picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was just, because oftentimes we were working with people who were putting out their first records. Mm-hmm. So I'd be like, okay, let me explain because Slim once explained it to me in this really awesome way, you know, in, like what a mechanical was and how it referred to a play or piano. And I was like, oh, mm. right. If we can explain where this bizarre, <laughs> antiquated idea came from, maybe we can understand how it fits into life now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, that's sometimes the best way is take yeah. it to the simplest place and then it's gotten lost along the way. Totally, totally. And I mean, that's where, that's where my passion for education for cash comes from is like, I basically did that for years for people. And so doing that on a larger scale and realizing that that's still something the artists need is sort of why I'm so gung ho on it. This week, I'd like to recommend two things. One is something I'm probably really late on, which is that the Paris, you know, spelled P-V-R-I-S record is one of the best records of the year. I'd listened to it earlier this year, but it really just somehow hit me in the last two weeks uh, how amazingly well done that record is. Uh, And then secondly... Uh, there's a podcast called Creative Control, which I've recommended some episodes from the past, but they did a documentary podcast on the band Drive Like Jehu. If you like, well, the bands aren't coming to me, but many of the emo revival bands that are ripping off older emo bands, their favorite band was Drive Like Jehu. It also featured members of Rocket from the Crypt and Obits, but most notably for scene kids, uh, Mark Trombino, who produced like Jimmy World, Finch, The Wonder Years. Uh, he was the drummer of the band. Um, so this podcast is like just so well done, a two-hour history and interview of the band recapping, and it's just so well done. It's exactly what I hope to do with this podcast in time, is do really good long-form pieces on a subject, and this is a great example of it. So uh, Creative Control, it's both K's in the name. Uh, check that out. Here's a recommendation from Frank Turner. There's a guy, there's a singer from London called Will Varley, V-A-R-L-E-Y. Um, he self-released two albums. He's about to release his third record on Extra Mile Recordings. And I am... I know that I am a man given to hyperbole in my idiom, in my speech idiom, but I'm honest, I swear to God, this is the best record I've heard in a decade. He is just 
an unfucking believable songwriter, and it's coming out in uh, later this month, I think, and it will make people fall down. It is so good. Maggie Vale. I saw the Danny Says documentary about Danny Fields. So good. So so Danny Fields was uh, he was a journalist. He was um, an A&R person at Electra Records, and then he was the manager of the Ramones very early on. But he was this guy that was at the center of literally everything for a really magical period of time. He's the reason why the Stooges and the MC5 got signed to Electra. He's the reason why the, the, the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. He took that quote and put it on a magazine cover. <laughs> So this, I mean, this story was just insane and he's hilarious and he's one of those people that's just in love with music and in love with artists and is doing it all for the right reasons. And, you know, I mean, there was parts of it where I teared up, but it was just, it was beautiful, you know, but it, there were so many little gems in it. But my, one of my favorite ones was he was listening to, or he, he, sorry, he had this these audio tapes, these cassettes, he would record conversations of hanging out with his friends and he was hanging out with Lou Reed listening to the first Ramones record. He played it for Lou Reed, and then they're having this conversation about the record right after Lou Reed has heard the Ramones for the first time. And he's losing his mind. He's totally losing his mind. He's like, this is it. This is what we've all been working towards. This is it. <laughs> I think it's just being screened around the country right now. Danny says, if it comes to your town, go see it. Run. <laughs> and contributor Dana Riambler. So this week I'm recommending two things. First, the brand new record of The World is a Beautiful Place entitled Harmlessness. It's very, very fantastic. I personally was not a fan of the band prior to this release, so Harmlessness definitely changed things up a bit for me. I'm very, very pleased with it. It's it's great. You guys should definitely check it out. Second, I am recommending, I'm super stoked to recommend actually, a mail app called Spark. I've spent the past few months trying to find the perfect mail app, and I cannot. I have had three to four mail clients at one point on my phone because I couldn't get anything, any. I couldn't get any of them to do what I wanted. Um, Spark is just, you know, just what I needed for organizing my mail. Um, it incorporates all the good stuff that apps like mailbox and the gmail app and outlook and dispatch have to offer um one thing though it is an iphone only app so um if you wanted to use it on your ipad you will not be able to do so at the moment but i believe that they are planning to roll out betas for the ipad version very soon so you guys should stay tuned for that Thanks for listening to Off The Record. If you enjoy the show, the best way to say thank you is to share this episode on social media, whether it's your Twitter, your Facebook, your Tumblr, your whatever, and just tell your friends. We just want the word to spread. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, it's at OffTheRecordFM. You can get show notes, explore old episodes at OffTheRecord.FM. If you think we should be talking about something, please let us know with the hashtag TellOTR on Twitter or ask us via Tumblr at OffTheRecord.FM. This episode was produced by Jesse Cannon and Ashley Aaron. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week.